This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Being happy is great. Moments of joy are great. But being whole and complete is the real life goal. Visit betterhelp.com super and get on your journey to finding wholeness. What if Harry Potter had been sorted into Slytherin House instead of Gryffindor like the sorting hat wanted? We've been slowly answering this question over the past six weeks. And today we have finally arrived at part seven. Harry's final year in the war against Voldemort is very interesting in terms of being in Slytherin because, for the most part, he's not at Hogwarts, where your house makes the largest impact on your day-to-day -day life. Instead, most of the changes this year are a result of his past decisions as a member of Slytherin and how those actions have rippled forward in time and what it means to be a true Slytherin. Will the fact that Harry and Hermione have openly admitted their feelings for each other affect their travels? Will Ron still leave, or can they destroy the locket right away now that they have the sword? And if they already have the sword, does Snape still send the dough? I'm not gonna lie, you guys, this book is wild, and all the changes throughout Harry's journey result in a crazy ending. Hey, brother, and welcome everyone to What If Harry Was in Slytherin, Part 7. All right, let's do this. Deathly Hallows, of course, kicks off not with Harry, but over at Malfoy Manor, where Voldemort is having the world's worst snack party ever. By which I mean he just brought a snack for the snake and none of the Death Eaters, who as a result are all just famished. Anyway, the meeting is actually about how they're going to capture Harry on or before his birthday when the Order tries to move him. And more or less, all the same things are discussed, but there are a few differences. First off is Snape, who, if you will recall, in part six, had his hand sliced off and his wand destroyed by Harry casting Sectum Sempra. But Snape is not still handless. Instead, much the same as Wormtail was rewarded a brand new hand for capturing Harry Potter, Snape has also been awarded a silver hand for killing Albus Dumbledore. Voldemort still takes Lucius's wand, essentially making him one of the wandless and basically a third-class citizen. And he checks with Snape that Snape has procured a new wand for himself, which he has. The Malfoys, as usual, are pretty much just over Voldemort at this point. But the big change is that Draco has already sort of been over Voldemort for like five years now. In fact, if you will recall, on top of the astronomy tower, Draco actually accepted Dumbledore's offer to hide his entire family. Which might have felt a little irrelevant at the time because Dumbledore died like a minute later, but it did do a lot to harden Draco's true allegiance. So along with Voldemort taking his father's wand and all the other Death Eaters taunting Draco about babysitting the cubs, Draco exists less in just terror and with much more resolve to actually take down Voldemort. He just has to find a way to do it from the inside. As such, in what appears to be an effort to prove himself, Draco volunteers to be a part of the party that is going to go capture Harry. I'm probably the best fly you've got. Very well, Draco, you may participate. I do not doubt you are the best flyer here. On a broom, Voldemort says mysteriously. Cause he can fly. And then Nagini eats Charity Burbage, the Muggle Studies professor. Gross. Meanwhile, over at Privet Drive, Harry is just so frustrated that he can't do magic for another four days and is all upset because he read the preview of Rita Skeeter's new book in the Daily Prophet, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. As he's packing though, he still finds the broken shard of mirror from the two-way mirror Sirius gave him, and he still sees the flash of the blue eye in it. The Dursleys vacate the house as usual, and Vernon puts up all the same arguments, while Dudley, on the other hand, actually turns a corner and tells Harry, 
He doesn't think he's a waste of space. See you later, Big D. And then, as usual, the order shows up to move Harry. The only little uh, extra awkward part of this scene is that Hermione and Harry kissed at the end of part six, and now Hermione's having to transform into Harry, so, I mean, I think she's blushing pretty hard. I can tell you that Harry is for sure uncomfortable with it, but he doesn't have too much time to worry about it because just as soon as they take off, the battle is on. Complete chaos ensues as everyone takes off in different directions. Hedwig is struck down, Harry loses his firebolt, and Lupin gets a good look at Snape's brand new hand. Snape himself usually slices off George's ear in this battle, but with his new wand, it's not quite as powerful and he only manages to just slice some of it, so it's just dangling there. But the big change is that Draco is also part of the battle, and he's savvy enough to realize that the obvious real Potter is the one with the owl. Duh. Therefore, Draco pursues the correct Potter and tries to take advantage of the chaos to make Harry's journey as easy as possible. But there's only so much he can do. Harry still gives himself away by casting Expelliarmus and Voldemort still shows up. And when he tries to kill Harry, Harry still shoots the golden flames at him. This act destroys Lucius's wand and typically Voldemort then tries to take Selwyn's wand so he can attack Harry again. But this time, Selwyn is not there because in the confusion of all the golden fire, Draco takes advantage and fires second Sempra slashing Selwyn's face. It sounds really risky, but Draco correctly trusts that Voldemort and the Death Eaters will just assume this was Harry attacking with dark magic because it's exactly the same spell he used on Snape just a couple months ago. Shortly after this, Harry of course crash lands at the Tonks's before portkeying over to the burrow where Hermione is waiting with an extremely worried embrace and kiss. As we mentioned, George's ear actually hasn't been severed off completely and he actually starts sporting some really cool earrings to like, you know, make it look like it's still in the right spot. But as more and more people arrive at the burrow, they do eventually learn that Mad-Eye was still killed at the hands of Voldemort during the battle. Who then Harry sees inside the head of and finds out that Voldemort is torturing Ollivander, accusing him of lying to him about the twin cores and how Lucius's wand would defeat Harry. And Hermione, for one, is not pleased that Harry can see into Voldemort's head. But you know what? It's okay because it's wedding time! And this goes about the same as usual. Molly tries to separate Harry, Ron, and Hermione so they can't plan anything. But Eventually, they do all meet up in Ron's room where the sword of Gryffindor is just glistening in the sunlight next to the window. Admiring it, Harry goes to pick up the sword and can't help but notice that even though it's sitting in the sun, it's kind of hot to the touch. Hermione also goes over how you destroy a horcrux, mentioning, of course, basilisk venom like Dumbledore and Harry used on the ring. And this time, she actually brings up Fiendfire right away, just like Ron fought off with the sword at the end of the last year. She explains this would be effective, but whether they like it or not, Snape is an incredibly accomplished wizard who knew what he was doing with Fiendfire, and it would be way too reckless and dangerous for them to even attempt it, even if they thought Ron could take down some of the fiery monsters with the sword. Well, the good news is we still have the Basilisk, so we can still destroy them. The bad news is we don't have any other Horcruxes, and we're not going back to Hogwarts this year says Harry. But in other other good news, it's Harry's birthday! Yay! Happy birthday, Harry! He's 17! He's of age! And it's a pretty unique birthday for Harry because Rufus Scrumjower, the Minister of Magic, shows up to deliver the contents of Dumbledore's will to Harry, Ron, and Hermione, which for the most part is the same, but there are a couple of key differences. Ron still gets the Deluminator, Hermione still gets Tales of Beetle the Bard, and Harry still gets the Snitch. But in the main story, this is normally the Snitch that Harry caught with his mouth. In this version of events, Harry just caught it 
with his hand. So when Scrimjar gives it to him, Harry is unable to avoid touching the snitch with his hand. Meaning Scrimjar actually sees the message, I open at the close, appear on the side. Scrimjar obviously grills Harry about what this means, but honestly, it doesn't make a huge difference that Scrimjar sees this. Because for one, they themselves, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, don't know what I open at the close even means. And two, Scrimjower is about to get closed the very next day. So uh, I don't know, I guess his final 24 hours, he lives knowing that his theory that Dumbledore was passing messages to Harry was correct. But the other obvious big change here is that Dumbledore typically tries to leave Harry the sword, but obviously he doesn't this time because Ron already has it. And this is kind of a big one because in the main story, they eventually realized the sword is how Dumbledore intended them to destroy Horcruxes. But this time it wasn't even in play before Dumbledore died, so he couldn't have ever even left it to them. It also means as far as Harry, Ron, and Hermione are concerned, that there's no obvious way Dumbledore left them for how to destroy the Horcruxes, I guess, other than the Basilisk. And that point in particular, I'll warn you now, comes up later. But enough of wills and death and such, it's time for the wedding! Harry, as usual, takes some Polyjuice Potion and has to become Barney Weasley for the occasion, and also, as usual, Luna gets bit by a garden gnome on her way in, and her father is just so thrilled about it. Luna, my love, if you should feel any burgeoning talent today, perhaps an unexpected urge to sing opera or to declaim in Mermish, do not repress it. You may have been gifted by the Gnumblies. I know what you're thinking. Guys, you could have changed anything about the story and you included the Gnumblies. You'll see. Crom is of course also at the wedding as usual, and I guess still interested in Hermione, but it's not really as much of a jealousy thing here since Harry and Hermione are much more established than Hermione and Ron typically are at this point. But Crom does still point out the symbol of the Deathly Hallows that Xenophilius is wearing and describes it as Grindelwald's mark. The other sort of fun thing here is that normally Crom also notices how attractive Ginny is and Harry shoots him down, but I don't really see why Harry would shoot him down, so Crumb uh, dances with Jenny at the wedding. And on that note, on the whole, the wedding itself is a really great calm before the storm. Harry and Hermione are able to happily spend time together. Ron notices Luna dancing by herself and asks if she wants a partner. She does. Harry does still eventually end up at a table with Muriel and Doge, where Muriel plants all sorts of bad gossip in Harry's head. This is also when Harry realizes that the girl that came out of the ring horcrux in the chamber must have been Dumbledore's sister, Ariana. Meanwhile, over on the dance floor, Luna is showing Ron the bite on her finger and telling him about how her father advised her to act on any burgeoning talent or any unexpected urges. Ron grins and humoring her asks if she has felt any unexpected urges. And Luna, unblinkingly, stares directly into Ron's eyes and replies, yes, I have. But then almost as if on cue, Kingsley's Patronus shows up and announces that Scrimjower is dead, the ministry has fallen, and the Death Eaters are coming. And as usual, Harry, Ron, and Hermione escape to Tottenham Court Road, where they accidentally break the taboo and summon Raoul and Dalahaw who of course they duel and escape again to another random location. But after this, Harry is given another insight into Voldemort's mind where he witnesses Voldemort forcing Draco to torture Raoul and Dalahov. 
More owl, or shall we feed you to Nagini? Lord Voldemort is not sure that he will forgive this time. You called me back for this to tell me that Harry Potter has escaped again? Draco, give Raoul another taste of our displeasure. Do it or feel my wrath yourself. And this is an interesting scene because from Voldemort's perspective, he's kind of also torturing Draco here, who he believes is uncomfortable with this kind of work, which... He is. But again, Draco is much more bolstered by his allegiance to the other side this time. So Draco tries to use the situation to his advantage. And rather than just casting the Cruciatus Curse, he also casts Sectum Sempra and slices off a huge chunk of Raoul's shoulder. A truly sudden act of violence that actually impresses Voldemort. <laughs> but back to Harry, Ron, and Hermione, they eventually land on Grimald Place where they set up camp and try and get their bearings. As they explore the house, Harry appreciates Sirius's room even more than normal, feeling that even though they were opposites, they were actually somewhat but more the same. Sirius, a Gryffindor born to a Slytherin family, and Harry, a Slytherin born to a Gryffindor family. But as ever, the three of them pieced together pretty quickly that R.A.B. was actually Regulus Arcturus Black. And as always, they summon Creature and get the full story out of him about the cave and how Regulus turned size. And all that is obviously the exact same since it happened way before Harry was born. But in any case, they have a lead on the locket and send Creature to go find Mundungus. And while he is gone, Lupin shows up. Lupin fills them in on everything else that's happening and offers them his services, which Harry shuts down hard, basically saying that his father would never approve of Lupin abandoning his family, a really true James Potter moment for Harry. And as ever, Lupin storms out and Creature returns with Mundungus Fletcher, who reveals to them that that regular old bag of dead slugs, Dolores Umbridge, has the locket. As they plan their break into the ministry, some other minor things happen, including Snape being named headmaster at Hogwarts and the Caros being appointed as teachers. But Harry actually doesn't know who the Caros are this time because they weren't at the astronomy tower this time. That's not super important, but Snape being appointed headmaster still prompts Hermione to steal the portrait of Phineas Nigel's Black. And then they break into the ministry, which by all accounts goes pretty much the same. I mean, they are acting as other people and as such are treated as those people. Ron gets called away to fix a reigning office. Hermione gets called down to court with Umbridge. Harry goes to her office and steals Mad-Eye's eye. He sees the picture of Grindelwald, finds Hermione. They stun Umbridge, steal the locket and escape, but Yaxley grabs onto them and they lose Grimald Place. This of course is a huge blow for Harry, Ron and Hermione, but oh my goodness, did Yaxley let Harry Potter escape again? <laughs> oh boy, is somebody about to have a date with Draco and be missing an ear? Sucks to suck, Yaxley. And it has to be said, Voldemort has taken an absolute shining to this form of punishment. I mean, after all, what better form of payment for his forgiveness could his Death Eaters give than their oh-so-valuable pure blood. Honestly, it's not that different from one of the protections he had on the cave where you had to cut yourself and offer blood in order to enter. But back to Harry, Ron, and Hermione, it's time to go camping and they are about to get really good at it except for finding food for some reason. As a side note, this is also when Harry has the vision of Grindelwald stealing the Elder Wand from Grigorovich, but he doesn't know it's Grindelwald and can't identify who the young thief is. But more importantly, they now have the locket. And you might think, does that mean they can destroy it immediately because they have the sword? But actually, no, for two reasons. While the sword is presently imbued with fiend fire, the same way that it is typically imbued with basilisk venom, none of them have really put that together yet. As far as they're concerned, the goblin-made nature of the blade is actually what allowed Ron to stop the fiend fire. 
But also, even if they realized it, they'd still have to figure out how to open the locket before they could destroy it. That said, they do decide to set the sword out whenever they set up camp. It's just sort of an extra layer of defense in case anyone shows up. And Harry can't help but notice that it feels really warm whenever he passes by the sword, or maybe that's just from sitting by the fire? You might also be thinking, wait, Harry has access to the basilisk. Him and Dumbledore destroyed the ring with it last year. Wouldn't they just go back to Hogwarts to try and destroy the locket? But again, no. Even in the main story after they get the locket, Harry doesn't see this as an option. Harry's first thought was of the Forbidden Forest, and for a moment, even though he knew how foolish and dangerous it would be for them to appear in the grounds of Hogwarts, his heart leapt at the thought of sneaking through the trees to Hagrid's hut. But the other big change here is how the locket affects Harry whilst he's wearing it. Which is actually a lot different because Harry was sorted into Slytherin and has proven time and time again that he is a true Slytherin. He can control the Basilisk. And this was a relic once owned by Salazar Slytherin. So unlike usual, when Harry puts the locket on, he starts hearing a voice inside his head repeating over and over. Only the determined can open me and find my secret. I can lead you to the power you seek. I can help you succeed in your ambitions. Harry immediately assumes this is Voldemort talking to him from inside the locket. And remembers what happened when Dumbledore tried to destroy the ring, how his secret shame emerged from it and began accosting him. Ron and Hermione feel similar sentiments when they are wearing the locket, but for them, it actually is Voldemort tempting them towards power. But unbeknownst to Harry, for him, it is not the voice of Voldemort. It is instead Salazar Slytherin himself speaking in Parseltongue. Harry's mood also doesn't seem to be as affected as the other two, so he volunteers to wear the locket more. But Ron and Hermione, knowing how the locket makes them feel, don't like the idea of Harry hearing Voldemort whispering in his ear all the time. And so it goes. Days turn into weeks with little progress. Ron begins taking the sword out and practices swinging it around whenever they stop just to pass the time. Harry notices that despite the weather becoming quite cold outside, Ron returns from these practice sessions just absolutely covered in sweat, but also with an absolutely improved mood. Harry chalks this up to the benefit of exercise, but in actuality, it is the sword cleansing the effects of the locket on Ron. Which is not to say spirits are uncrushably high or anything. I mean, they are still camping around with a horcrux and failing to gather or multiply food in any sort of meaningful way consistent with their characters. Seriously, this just always bothers me. Like, summon some fish, y'all, jeez. Speaking of which though, you know who does know how to summon fish from the river? Uh, Ted, Dean, Dirk, Gornuck, and Grip Hook, or as I like to call them the Beatles. These five are of course still on the run and still almost run into Harry, Ron, and Hermione's camp where Harry, Ron, and Hermione eavesdrop on them and learn some crucial information. Typically, they all trade stories about Ginny, Luna, and Neville trying to break into Snape's office to steal the Sword of Gryffindor. But of course, uh, Snape never had the Sword of Gryffindor, so that doesn't happen. However, they do still mention the Quibbler and how it's the only thing worth reading. And Dean does still mention that he reckons Harry Potter is the real deal. He did slice off Snape's hand and break his wand after all. Griphook chimes in and says that he heard about this, but the goblins were actually more concerned with the appearance of the long lost sword of Gryffindor and how it absorbed all of those slams and is likely extremely powerful now. And Harry, Ron, and Hermione all immediately revel in this information, realizing that they've had the solution with them 
them the whole time. Excitement is high as they pull out the locket and the sword. Ron raises the sword above his head and almost as if it knows its intended purpose, the sword lights itself on fire. Seeing this and filled with confidence, Ron brings the sword down hard on the locket. But much to his surprise, the locket remains completely untarnished. I know, bummer, right? Thought they had it. But Harry, similar to the main story, knows why it didn't break, because it's not open. Before they can destroy it, they need to open it. But how, he wonders. As Harry ponders this question over the next few days, he watches Ron, who is practicing lighting the sword on fire on command and reflects on what a true Gryffindor Ron really is. He stares at the locket, wondering how to open it, really taking in the large ornate S, and then realizes with a start that the locket used to belong to Slytherin. Now, of course, they always knew this to be true, but the entire time they've had it, Harry has been treating it as nothing but a possession of Voldemort's. But with this new brain blast, he thinks back to what Hepzibah Smith said about the locket in the cup, that they're supposed to have all sorts of different powers that she never tested. Which then makes Harry realize the locket must have had powers before it was a Horcrux. Could it still? And what would those powers be? What would Salazar Slytherin have used the locket for? To hide something? But what did he have to hide? But Harry's brain was racing ahead. He knew the answer before he even finished the thought. The Chamber of Secrets, the Basilisk, Parcelmouth, it's Slytherin. The voice I'm hearing, it's not Voldemort, it's Slytherin, Salazar Slytherin, and he's speaking Parseltongue. That's why I can hear him. And he's trying to tell me how to find the Chamber of Secrets. That's what he used the locket for. It was handed down from generation to generation till it reached the Gaunts. His heir was supposed to open it. What does that mean, Harry? Asks Hermione. It means I know how to open the locket. Ron, get the sword ready. Ron pokes his head around the corner and says, flame on. Probably not. They lay the locket on the ground outside the tent and gather round. Ron has the sword lit and Harry stares at the locket and hisses in parcel tongue, open. Now normally this is where the locket kind of tortures Ron, telling him that Hermione would always have preferred the chosen one over him and that his mother would have preferred Harry over him. This time, however, the taunt is much more cryptic and yet somehow kind of familiar. All that emerges from the locket is a large red moon slowly being eclipsed by darkness. Ron is not sure why, but is filled with an immense cold as the light from the moon fades away. Ron is frozen in place as Harry and Hermione yell encouragements at him at a complete loss for what they're witnessing. Finally, Ron feels the warmth of the blade in his hand and comes to, raises the sword and strikes the locket, destroying it. The three celebrate and then immediately converge to discuss what they just saw coming out of the locket. Was that like a boggart? Harry asks. Lupin's boggart was a full moon, but you're not a werewolf. Why would you fear that? A red moon is a lunar eclipse, Hermione continued. We know that from our OWL astronomy, but what could that mean? Unfortunately for Hermione though, interpretations of such things was a totally different skill. And if there was one subject Hermione was always really bad at, it was divination. Are we sure it was the moon? Harry asks, thinking back to his first encounter with Frenzy and the centaurs in the Forbidden Forest and how they kept exclaiming, Mars is bright tonight. On that occasion, Harry points out they were also very close to a piece of Voldemort's soul. Harry and Hermione continue to discuss the mysterious red moon while Ron stands there, sword still in hand, staring at the spot where the moon was, apparently lost in his own thoughts. Wait a second, hold on, can you hear that? It sounds familiar, but I can't quite place it. Uh, you know what, you know what I think it is? I think it's your booty talking because it's time to give a big thank you to today's sponsor, MeUndies. Whenever your booty talks, you gotta you got listen. Huh, 
Does it sound like it's asking for me undies because they make the most buttery soft undies, bralettes, and socks known to man? I gotta tell you what though, it is mighty convenient for you guys that your butt just decided to speak up because me undies is currently offering their best deal in years. 20% off your first purchase plus free standard shipping and returns when you head over to meundies.com slash theories. Don't upset your butt, you guys. Don't force it to wear department store brand scratchy, hot, uncomfortable undies. You gotta go with me undies. I mean, it makes your whole world a little bit softer and life a little bit better. I mean, I think we can all admit life is just a little bit more manageable when you got some soft britches on. So let your skin sing a song of joy with undies, socks, and bralettes that feel like they were woven from a silken cloud. Guaranteed to be the softest stuff you've ever felt in your life, their signature micromodal fabric is sustainable, breathable, and stretchy as heck. Available in sizes extra small to 4XL, they now have new colors and prints dropping weekly, so there's always something exciting to check out. Plus, try their free-to-join membership for free shipping on every order and exclusive perks, like an item shipped to your door every month secret sales, and early access to their newest stuff. Again, that's 20% off your first order, free shipping and returns, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee when you head over to MeUndies.com theories. One more time, that's MeUndies.com theories. Link is in the description down below. Now, typically what happens next is that Ron abandons Harry and Hermione for a couple of weeks, during which the two of them go to Godric's Hollow to look for the sword because they think Dumbledore must have left it there for them to find. But obviously Ron didn't leave this time and they already have the sword. Which is not to say that Harry doesn't still want to go visit Godric's Hollow, but usually the idea that the sword will be there is what convinces Hermione that it'll be worth the risk. But not going to Godric's Hollow is kind of a big deal because a lot happens there. They visit the graveyard where they see Ignotus Peveril's grave and the sign of the Deathly Hallows, James and Lily's grave, Dumbledore's family's graves. They go to the Potter's old house. They see the statue of the Potter's in the middle of town. Harry gets tricked by Nagini, who's pretending to be Bethilda Bagshot, who tries to hold him for Voldemort to get there, but then Harry escapes and Harry's wand gets broken, and Voldemort finds the picture of Grindelwald and identifies who the thief is. But this time they don't have any real need to go to Godric's Hollow because again, they already have the sword and they can light it on fire, which is awesome. Speaking of lighting the sword on fire, you guys, though, last week we asked you guys to send in submissions of art for Ron fighting the fiend fire with the sword of Gryffindor. And oh my, like, I cannot even tell you how cool it was looking at you guys' submissions. You guys are such good artists. I mean, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. It's so good. Thank you guys so much for your continued submissions. I am loving seeing them. Thank you. But back to our heroes, who in all their excitement have now suddenly run out of leads, other than the fact that Hermione finally spots the symbol of the Deathly Hallows in Tales of Beetle the Bard. Harry also recognizes the symbol that Xenophilius was wearing at the wedding, and Ron suggests that they go visit the Love Goods for, you know, reasons. And suspecting Xenophilius is a safe bet to go visit, and because it sounds like the Quibbler is pro-Harry, and because Ron is all about it, and they don't have any other leads, they decide to go visit Xenophilius. Timeline-wise, we find ourselves right where we would with the main story, which is just after Christmas. Typically, Harry and Hermione visit Godric's Hollow on Christmas Day. As per usual, though, that means Luna was supposed to be sent home for the holidays, but was intercepted by the Death Eaters as a way to put pressure on Xenophilius for all the pro-Harry Potter stuff he's been printing in the Quibbler. Nonetheless, Harry, Ron, and Hermione arrive at the Love Goods, and Xenophilius indeed fills them in on the tale of the three brothers and what the Deathly Hallows are. As the trio explore the Lovegood's house, they wander into Luna's room where they discover painted on her ceiling a very familiar looking red 
moon. Ron, who fully knew what the Horcrux vision meant from the start, exchanges a very red-faced look with Harry and Hermione, who grin back at him, eyebrows raised. Except they also realize why Ron's vision had seemed so cold. Luna was missing. Pieces of the puzzle started clicking together. But they don't have long to discuss the subject as the printing press starts doing its thing and spitting out copies of the Quibbler, Harry's face on the Cubbler, reading undesirable number one. They realize the Death Eaters are on their way and Xenophilius begs them to stay, saying the only reason he's printing that is because they took his Luna and he wants to get her back. Now, specifically, the two Death Eaters that show up at the Lovegood's house are Travers and Selwyn. Selwyn being the Death Eater that Draco attacked during the Battle of the Seven Potters and slashed his face. What surprises the trio, though, is that Selwyn's face appears to have been repaired with the same glistening silver as Snape's hand. The silver branches away from the wound in every direction, giving Selwyn a frightening partial metal face. Harry thought back to the silver masked Death Eaters in the graveyard during his fourth year and wondered if this was some sort of new, more permanent mask. Obviously, Harry, Ron, and Hermione need to escape this situation as fast as possible, and they do in pretty similar fashion as the main story, operating out just after they let the Death Eaters glimpse Harry's face. Now, normally Ron is furious that Xenophilius has betrayed Harry, but this time Ron is furious that the Death Eaters have kidnapped Luna and that Xenophilius has betrayed Harry. He vents his frustration by swinging the Sword of Gryffindor all around the tall grass in the field they've landed in, singeing the edges wherever it touches. And it's in this moment when Harry has another vision of Voldemort who is irate. You saw Harry Potter and let him get away, Travers. It seems to me you are not worthy of the gift of sight. Draco, relieve Travers of his eye. Almost unbelievably, in the middle of this tirade, Harry, Ron, and Hermione hear, of all people, Luna's voice. But being stranded in the middle of nowhere, they look around thinking there's no way Luna can somehow be here. They hear the voice again, and this time Harry and Hermione look directly at Ron, thinking the voice somehow came from him. Ron reaches into his pocket and pulls out the Deluminator. The three look on in awe as Luna's voice emits faint but clear from the small device. My friend Ron had one of those. He fought a giant fiery snake with it. Confused, Ron clicks the Deluminator and to their surprise, a small ball of light emerges and enters Ron's chest right next to his heart. Ron gasps, I know what to do. And then without warning, disapparates and Ron is gone. Harry and Hermione stare at each other absolutely dumbfounded. Where had Ron just gone? How was he going to find them again? They call his name out over and over, Ron, Ron, but darkness is falling and they realize there's simply no hope of him hearing them. Ron? Crack! Ron arrives in the basement of Malfoy Manor to find Luna, Ollivander, Griphook, and Dean who are all being held captive there. Ollivander, Griphook, and Dean turn completely shocked at the sudden appearance of Ron. Luna, however, just slowly turns her head as if she was expecting Ron to show up at any moment. Oh, hello there, Ron. I was just talking about you. Where are we? Says Ron. We are in the basement of Draco Malfoy's house, says Luna. Upstairs, the Death Eaters heard the crack of Ron's appearance and send Wormtail downstairs to investigate. Ron, sword still in hand, hides and waits to see who's coming down. Pettigrew demands everyone back against the wall and emerges from the stairs, wand held high. What was that crack? He demands in a squeaky voice which I'm sure you heard. Ron immediately recognizes the voice and filled with hatred, steps out, sword raised. Wormtail is shocked as he takes in the sight of the sword. Well, if it isn't my old pet scabber, says Ron as he breaks into a run, the sword lighting up over his head. Gotta say, he's getting really good at this. But Wormtail reacts quickly. Expelliarmus! Ron is blasted backward, the sword of Gryffindor landing at Pettigrew's feet, who picks it up and reads the name on the sword with a greedy look in his eyes. So this is the sword that stops Severus's fire. 
The Dark Lord has been looking for this for a long time. Give that back, yells Ron. You're not worthy to even look at it. You're no Gryffindor. Peter smiles maliciously down at Ron and raises the sword as if to strike him down. But then, as if with a mind of its own, the sword erupts back into flames. Except this time, the flames tear right down the hilt. And in a single moment, Peter's entire body is engulfed in fire. His screams fill the entire basement. Draco rushes down the stairs and takes in the entire scene. Wormtail writhing on the floor. The inexplicable appearance of Ron with Luna. Dean, Griphook, and Ollivander all crowding behind him. Voldemort will hear about this, Draco says, but as he does, another loud crack is heard all the way around the basement. Draco then meets Ron's eyes and mouths the word, go. And with that, Ron apparates out of the basement, the other four in tow, back to Harry and Hermione. Pure shock and relief are visible on the faces of Harry and Hermione as Ron reappears, but only for a moment before it is replaced by confusion at the sudden appearance of also Luna, Ollivander, Dean, and Griphook. Ron fills them in on everything that had happened and how the sword turned on Pettigrew and how Draco had come down the stairs and threatened them, but then also encouraged them to leave. Then almost on cue, Harry is sucked once more into Voldemort's mind. He is furious as he arrives at Malfoy Manor, Draco having summoned him to find that Wormtail is dead and his prisoners have escaped. Harry can feel Voldemort's rage building as Draco explains what happened, how he came downstairs and Wormtail had somehow set himself on fire, how he had screamed Voldemort's name as he burned, breaking the taboo in the basement, allowing Ron and the others to escape. But not before I collected this from him, sir, says Draco, presenting Voldemort with the sword of Gryffindor. And at this, Harry feels Voldemort's rage melt into pure elation at the sight of the sword. I have been looking for this for a very long time. Well done, Draco. Well done, says Voldemort, his red eyes ablaze as he stares down at the sword. Bellatrix, he calls out. We have a new treasure I will need you to store with the other relic in your vault. After this, Harry arrives back in his own mind in the tent, gasping for breath. The Lestrange vault, he yells. Gringotts, there's another Horcrux. He's got another Horcrux at Gringotts. And from there, Ron suggests they head to Shell Cottage where the others can recover and because Bill is likely to be some help if they're going to break into the bank. Over the next few days, they learn more about what happened in the basement and guess that Ron was able to apparate into the basement because of whatever magic Dumbledore had imbued into the Deluminator. Which in case you're wondering is love. The Deluminator can bring you to the people you love and it's way more powerful than like little anti-apparition stuff they would have set up in the basement. Full video by clicking the card. Harry also realizes that Draco successfully successfully lied to Voldemort about Peter breaking the taboo and that he, Draco, had done it himself to help them. Now, one big difference about the group arriving in Shell Cottage is that usually Harry is really pressed for time because they went to Godric's Hollow and Voldemort was able to learn the identity of the thief. But this time Harry is not so pressed for time, so he's able to question Ollivander at his leisure and confirm the existence of the Elder One, which prompts Harry to have his usual vistas of truth opening up to him from every direction where he suddenly realizes exactly what Dumbledore wanted him to do and to collect the Deathly Hallows to defeat Voldemort. Harry realizes that the wand is for sure real. The cloak is for sure real, and after remembering Marvolo Gaunt and the ring, is positive the Resurrection Stone is real too, and that Dumbledore must have given it to him inside the snitch. Now, normally Hermione shoots all this down pretty hard, but there are a few things that are different this time. Usually, Dumbledore tried to give them the sword via his will, which they figure out was his intended way for them to destroy Horcruxes. This time, however, Dumbledore died before the sword ever appeared. Harry reasons out in his own mind that Dumbledore was trying to point them towards the Elder Wand because 
it has the power to destroy Horcruxes. And that's why they need it. Xenophilius is the one who told them about the Horcruxes, and now Luna is with them at Shell Cottage, so they also ask her if there's anything else she knows about the Hallows. Well, me and Daddy once visited the grave of Ignotus Peverell in Godric's Hollow when we were harvesting shrivel figs. He and his brothers are thought to have been the original owners of the Hallows, you know. Harry, who has his own reasons for wanting to visit Godric's Hollow, perks up at this information. One of the Peverells is buried at Godric's Hollow, I wonder if Dumbledore could have hidden the wand there. If we're gonna break into Gringotts, we're gonna need all the power we can get. I'm not sure, says Hermione. Ron, who we know is the one who always wants the wand to begin with, and who is feeling guilty for having lost the sword, their only other way to destroy the Hallows, and who kind of wants to appeal to Luna's beliefs, agrees with Harry. They should go to Godric's Hollow. But if Dumbledore knew where the wand was, why didn't he use it, Harry? Why did he wait all year to destroy the ring with you and the Basilisk, argues Hermione. Dumbledore never wanted power, Hermione. How many times was he offered the job of Minister of Magic, and he always refused, said Harry, thinking back to when Tom Riddle visited Dumbledore in his office asking for a job. But this is Voldemort, Harry. Certainly Dumbledore could have justified the use of the wand to destroy a Horcrux. Or maybe, says Ron, maybe you can't use one hallow to destroy the other. So you couldn't have used the wand to destroy the ring, could you? Even Harry feels like this is kind of a stretch, but as he wants to go to Godric's Hollow, he goes along with Ron. Yeah, that makes sense. And realizing there's simply no talking them out of it, Hermione agrees on the conditions that they are extremely careful. And over the next few days, they make preparations to go to Godric's Hollow. If we're going to Godric's Hollow, Harry, somewhere I'm sure Voldemort will expect you to go, I think we should disguise ourselves using this. And with a flourish, she produces a vial of Polyjuice Potion from inside her beaded bag. And I think we should wear the invisibility cloak. When Harry, Ron, and Hermione arrive in Godric's Hollow, a light snow is falling, and the three are disguised as muggles using hair they stole earlier in the week. Together, they set off for the graveyard, where they hope to inspect the gravestone of Ignotus Peveril, and where Harry hopes to find his parents' graves. On their way, they come across an obelisk in the center of town that, as they approach, transforms instead into a statue of Harry and his parents. Look, Harry, it's you, says Ron. Harry stares in awe at the statue and notices with some curiosity that him and his father father's heads are covered in snow, while his mother's remains completely pristine. Perplexed, but not particularly bothered, they move on to the graveyard. And the graveyard is pretty emotional. Despite all of her arguments about coming, Hermione is actually really happy for Harry that he gets to visit his parents' graves, and explains the description on their headstones. The last enemy that shall be defeated is death. Ron, who was giving the two of them a moment, finds Dumbledore's grave and calls them over, and personally takes in the words, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He thinks of how Dumbledore himself must have chosen these words, and of the Deluminator, and how it brought him to Luna. Together, the three of them move on, and eventually do find Ignotus's grave, which does have the symbol of the Deathly Hallows on it, but otherwise provides very little context or clues at all. It must be here, says Harry, starting to feel a little frustrated. I know it must be. Maybe the words on Dumbledore's mother's grave are a hint? The treasure I seek is the wand. Where is my heart? he says, and looks up at Hermione and gets an idea. My parents' house, the last place we were all whole and together, Harry says. It wasn't hard to locate the remains of the Potter residence. At the end of the row was a dark mass, the wreckage of the former home. And like always, as they approach and touch the gate, a sign emerges from the ground, explaining, the house is invisible to muggles, but remains in disrepair as a monument to the Potters and the violence that tore apart their family. Tears fall from Harry's face as he reads the graffiti etched into the sign. But then something bright catches Harry's eyes. A silver doe is emerging from beyond the house and approaching the trio. Hermione gasps. No way, says Ron. Harry himself stood in disbelief, but felt this is it, instinctually knowing 
The doe was a friend. The doe slowly approaches Harry before bowing its head and turning back towards the house. And without thinking, Harry follows the doe across the gate and towards the front steps of the property. As Harry gets closer, amongst all the decay and wreckage, Harry is surprised to find flowers beautiful, tall lilies standing proud as if they had just been planted there that morning. Harry reaches out to brush the snow off one of the petals when suddenly something else emerges from the flowers. A stem? No. This wasn't like the green stems around it. This was a wand. Harry grabbed the wand and felt a sensation of absolute warmth wash over him, a feeling he hadn't experienced since being chosen by his own wand back in his first year at Ollivander's. Harry turns and shows the others who are staring at him in complete shock. Can't be, can it? Asked Ron. I don't believe it, Harry. You were right, but... Who cast the Patronus? asked Hermione. But Harry has no time to answer because just then a noise shuffles behind them. They turn and find the outline of a woman who appears to be dressed in rags and who had clearly been watching them. It is of course Bethilda Bagshot, sort of, who beckons them to follow her. Harry remembers Muriel and Doge talking about how Bethilda Bagshot knew the Dumbledores and guesses it must have been her who cast the doe. This is it, it must have been her and maybe now she's here to tell us how to open the snitch. I open at the close. This is the close, the end of the quest. Hermione's not quite sure this totally makes sense, but having been proven so thoroughly wrong just now about the Elder Wand, trusts Harry's instincts and follows. And we all know what happens next. Ron and Hermione stay downstairs while Harry follows Bethilda upstairs. Bethilda turns out to be a giant snake who attacks Harry and calls Voldemort there. Hermione and Ron rush in. Hermione casts a Confringo spell that bounces around and crushes Harry's wand, and at the last second, she manages to apparate the three of them away. Harry, Ron, and Hermione arrive back at Shell Cottage with Harry horribly bitten. Meanwhile, Voldemort screams in fury as Harry escapes. Until that is, he looks down and finds the picture of the thief he's been looking for. Harry awakens the next day to the horrible news that his holly wand has been broken. Yeah, but you've got the elder wand now, mate, says Ron, trying to console him. But for Harry, this is still not great news. The elder wand to him was only ever a means to destroy the Horcruxes. His own wand had held the protection of the twin cores, and even when he thought of possessing the elder wand, he still thought he'd use his original wand when facing Voldemort. He voices this concern to Ron and Hermione, who suggest, well, maybe you can fix the old one with the elder wand. Cheered by this thought, Harry gets out of bed and finds the new wand they recovered from Godric's Hollow and directs it at his old wand. Repair it. The Hollow wand jumps together, but doesn't look fully healed. Harry tries casting a spell with it, but it just falls apart and sparks. Concerned, Harry brings the new wand to Ollivander to find out if he can tell him anything new about it, and it turns out he can. Ah, yes, mahogany, 11 inches, pliable, excellent for transfiguration. This wand belonged to James Potter. And guys, that brings us to the end of What If Harry Was in Slytherin, Deathly Hallows, Part 1. You're watching this on day one. We probably didn't put that in the title yet. Whoops. But guys, thank you so much for watching. I am excited to announce we do have one more week of What If Harry Was in Slytherin. Thank you again to everyone who has been submitting artwork throughout this. I do have another art prompt for everyone if you want to give it another go. I think uh, one of my favorite moments probably from this entire script is right there at the end where Harry is brought to the wreckage of his house by the Silver Doe and finds the other wand. I would love to see uh, shots of that. It's a little less action, a little bit more emotion. So if you want to send us something, you can do so right here. Don't forget to like the video if you haven't already and subscribe so you don't miss the true final installment of this series. If you want to see some more Harry Potter action from us, you can check out this video right here uh, telling you all about how the Deluminator works. But otherwise, until next time, Ben, I will see you in another life, brother.